If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. episode, Ellie is joined by Manhattan-based attorney Paul Edelstein, who compares his real-life experiences to the fictional portrayals seen in shows like Suits. We trace Paul's journey from his early fascination with the law in childhood, through completing his legal studies, and up to conquering the courtroom. Listen in to discover more about Paul's career. When did you first become interested in the law? I, I guess I became interested in the law when I was first able to talk because my father was a Brooklyn lawyer and his father was a Brooklyn lawyer, my grandfather. So from pretty much the very moment I can utter any words, I was being cross-examined by my father and my older brother, who's a lawyer as well. So I would say at inception, the minute I could speak, I was in a courtroom. And so that probably sparked my interest at that point. Like, thank you. That's really interesting. That always seems to happen. People either come from sort of a family of lawyers or occasionally have never had any sort of experience in law. And it's really nice that you kind of came interested in it at such a young age. Following on from that, could you explain sort of about your pathway to becoming a lawyer? Well, I guess, you know, I, at growing up in basically a courtroom at my dining room table, you know, I felt like that was a good path. But then as you get a little older and you go to work, with your father for a little bit as a student, like maybe your age, you start to get the feeling like, wow, this doesn't look like a lot of fun. And, and it really didn't. My father was a divorce lawyer. And so when I went to work for him as like a clerk, which is the best way to start out, by the way, if you're going to be a lawyer, because when you start out as a clerk, you know, you, you, you do all the grunt work and that's how you learn everything. You read everything, you see everything and 
you get sent around. And that was really the best learning experience for being a lawyer. But that also turned me off to being a lawyer. You know, I was, I, when I got out of a university, you know, that's what we do. We go to university first here and then, and then elect to go to law school. I, I, I was admitted to law school, but really didn't think I wanted to continue to do that because of my experience in the matrimonial world with my father. So I took a year off and I ran around Europe having a lot of fun in pubs in London and all throughout Europe. And that seemed like a lot more fun than being a lawyer. And it was. And I was actually very, very concerned about entering into the practice. But ultimately what happened was that when I got out of law school and started to work, I didn't work for my father. I actually worked with my brother and another partner. And one of them did personal injury law. And then I realized, wow, the more medicine I know, because I represent injured people, uh, the more effective lawyer I'll be. And I really liked that. I was a biology minor in college. But, you know, like many lawyers, I couldn't do math, couldn't do chemistry and physics. So I, I couldn't be a doctor, but I could be like a doctor in the courtroom. And that was very appealing to me. And the ability to get in a courtroom and get in front of people, in front of jurors, in front of judges and, and do that stuff. I didn't really realize as a, as a student, that, you know, even though you see it on TV, that there was a, that there was a real aspect of that you can get involved in. And, and so that was a huge turn on when that happened. And I guess you know, that really spurred me to be the lawyer that I am now, which is like 29 years later. I know I only look, I don't look as young, I don't look as, young as you, but it, it has been about, I, it's going to be 30 years that I'm a practicing lawyer, which seems, seems like yesterday. Thank you. A lot of the time, people don't sort of just go straight into law and actually coming to it when you know you're going to really enjoy it. It's such an important part of, I suppose, maintaining a career in law. Yeah, well, you know what the best training for being a lawyer was? For me, it was being a waiter. And it's just no question about, about it because being a waiter really taught me how, how to, I, I can speak freely with you, right? Like this is it. So people ask me about what, what it's like day to day of being a lawyer and being a waiter was the best training for that because it taught me how to eat shit. That's what you had to do as a waiter. You had to deal with customers and bosses and all sorts of just, you know, situations where you really couldn't give it back even if you wanted to. And then unbeknownst to me, when I became a lawyer, wow, that was that ever the best training because then you become a professional shit eater. That's what you do day to day as a lawyer. You have to take shit from, your, from judges, <laughs> clients, adversaries. Everything we do is a fight. And, and you become sort of expert in dealing with those situations. And it, and it really, times, is, is very much feels like that, like just being an expert in taking crap from all over the place, but being able to sift through it and ultimately come out on the other side and prevail and maybe dish it out at some point. That's kind of like what a day-to-day -day life is for us. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting there. The sort of personal skills and being able to having that resilience to press through. And I imagine particularly your family being involved with law. And as you're saying, that dining room dynamic was probably really helpful to kind of know what to expect a bit more as well. Yeah, I guess I didn't know it at the time that, you know, I wasn't, I don't think my father was trying to train me, but that's just the nature of it that, you know, you had to explain yourself as you grew up in my family. And now my children, unfortunately for them, have to do the same. They have to explain themselves. We don't really just take, you know, their answers. And, and, and I wasn't allowed to do that. You'd say, well, I want to do this. Well, you got to ask why, you know, justify that. Why do you feel that way? And 
uh, and support the the arguments that you were making, you know, from childhood and then as a teenager and even as a young adult, why you were making choices that you that you made and uh, and that 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 along with you know <laughs> really having that training to deal with people as a waiter really uh, really equipped you for becoming a lawyer. Obviously, school is important, for, you know, for learning how to research and how to issue spot and uh, the things that you teach that you teach in law school. I think law school is a great education for any vocation because it teaches you how to think in a certain way and how to you know research and get support for positions you're taking but you know the kind of lawyer i am and i've always been is very very practical and so the practical experience of real world both family and working really suited me as a practicing lawyer we're mainly youtube-based podcast how long does it then take in kind of law school to become a qualified lawyer in the u.s Three years. So you go, you go to, we, we typically go to university for four years. I mean, you could finish it faster, but you know, why do that? You could stay and have fun, you know, so I wouldn't do that. And then after four years of university, you then enter law school, which typically takes three years, although some people do it in two and some people do it in, in four. There are a lot of people, including a, 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 what was a young associate of mine who's now a partner. He did it at night. He was a, a high school student that clerked here and loved it and went to school and continued to work here and then went to law school while working here. And I think it took him four years to get his law degree because he was doing it at night. So you can do it that way also here. I don't know what it's like over there, becoming a barrister or a solicitor. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's separate. So you can do it sort of straight out of school, just three years of studying law, and then like one or two training years, depending if you want to be barrister or solicitor. Yeah, that's really cool. What we always find interesting about your system, and of course, our system is very much based on the British system of law, thankfully, and there's so many, so many similarities. But one difference is that barrister-solicitor aspect, and I think that's a real interesting one. I, don't, I wonder if young Americans who don't seem as mature as some of the young Europeans I've met in my life would be equipped to make that decision at such a young age. In other words, do I want to be a barrister or a solicitor? I certainly think when I was 24, you know, coming out of law school at 23. And I, and I delayed my law school for a year, so I was more mature. I don't think I would have been able to make that choice as to which, more, which field. And I'm glad I didn't have to. So I can be both. I solicit and I barrister. It's yeah. yeah, and it's quite unusual. When you're talking about sort of your core experience, that sounds quite similar to a barrister experience in the UK. Definitely. I mean, we have lawyers, I think, that I would... Actually, to be, being a barrister here, let's say, so a trial lawyer. I'm a trial lawyer. I mean, I'm in court. That's where I live. That's where I want to be. That's my whole life's existence if, if I could choose to be there. So I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But most lawyers don't do that. I, I, I think, I don't know the actual statistics, but I think it's, it's in a very high 90 percentile. I mean, maybe 98% of lawyers in the United States don't ever go to court. They, they do not see the inside of courtrooms. They do not try cases. But yet I, I'll bet you the statistic would be reversed. I would say 98% of people thinking of going to law school and becoming a lawyer in the United States think that they're going to be a courtroom lawyer. But most aren't for a variety of reasons. I think mostly they just don't want to be that once. They don't want to experience that eating shit aspect that you have to when you go to court, right? So, Yeah, it's quite, I suppose also there's like that unpredictability. So yeah, it's easier to kind of end up in that situation where you're not quite sure what's going on. You get really pushed. I mean, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, and there's a, there's a lot of reasons why most lawyers don't see the inside of courtrooms. Most cases don't get tried, you know, they get resolved. There's, everything's not a trial, you know, so there's, there's, 
there's quite a bit of reasons, but and uh, but I think a lot of it is also choice and skill level. And I think a lot of people choose not to go in a courtroom because of the stress level and the difficulty in 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 doing that. It's it's, it's a completely different creature than most aspects of law being in a courtroom. But it's one that you know we I embrace and live for. Yeah, thank you. That's really, yeah, it's really interesting. And that's probably also some of the decision-making that goes into so like UK students, whether they want to go back. So you have to choose whether you want to be like on your toes and put in those stressful situations. Um, uh, that's going to be tough because I think if you choose that part, like I'm going to be a courtroom lawyer and then without having ever actually experienced it, you may think it's like what, what, tele- what it's like on TV, but boy, oh boy, it's not like television. Yeah, because I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but suits the U.S. think it's really big in the U.K. Well, you know what? It's interesting that you mentioned that. Okay, so because here there are two like television shows. So there are two movies, at least that I think are the most accurate representation of what it's like to be a practicing lawyer in at least where I practice in New York. And the two of them are a very old movie called The Verdict with Paul Newman, which actually was a med- about a medical malpractice case. It's amazing, and any law student should watch it because it's very close to accurate, even though. It takes place in like the 1970s. And that to you, that must seem like another world, but it, it really is accurate as to what it's like. And the other movie that's really, really like what it's, what it really is, is My Cousin Vinny. Ever see that? I think I've seen clips of it. I don't think I've ever watched the whole movie, but maybe I. That is a very pop culture, American pop culture movie. But really, I would tell anybody, at least in the United States, I don't think it'd be any different over there. If you want to know what it's really like to practice here, those are two movies that are as close to reality as what really happens, not the television shows that you see. It's not like that. Perfect. Thank you. That's, I suppose, also, that's at least particularly someone who just wants to have an idea. That's quite like a nice thing to do. You just watch that kind of pop culture yeah. movie. Actually, these days, you just like type it in and watch anything you want. Definitely. And you've spoken a little bit about it, but could you describe your role as kind of a specific personal injury specialist? Yeah. Well, what we, what, I represent people that were injured and claim that the injury was caused by someone else's fault, someone else's negligence. The one aspect of that here that I don't know if it's the same over there is that we work on contingency fees. And that's a really neat and unique and cool thing. So what that means is anybody can hire the, the, the best lawyer you can find in the United States in a civil personal injury case. And the, the reason is you don't have to pay us. So you're never restricted you know, so like, let's say if you're hiring a criminal lawyer or a corporate lawyer here in the United States, you know, the best ones probably are going to be expensive or more expensive. And so if you're a, a potential client seeking out a lawyer, that could be a real bar to you getting the best, let's say, because you can't afford it, right? Or afford anybody, let's say. But in the civil negligence world that I work in, you know, that doesn't exist. Every lawyer works on contingency fees, meaning our fees are contingent on us winning. So any client that comes to see me becomes my business partner. And I'm a really good business partner to have if I believe in your case. And by, by that, I'd, I'd have to, for me to become your partner, take your case, I have to believe I'm going to win. Because if I don't win, I'm not going to get paid. And so the clients don't have to pay us anything. And the only way that we get paid is if we prevail on the case. And that, that's an amazing aspect because it levels the playing field in the courtrooms for litigants. And so because the defendants I go against are typically giant, wealthy corporations or like I'm suing Harley Davidson right now in a really important media 
about a product liability case. And so they're pretty well equipped on the defense side. But you can level the playing field by having me and, have, and having access to someone like me to even that out. So we're usually going against corporations or large insurance companies. And so they're, they're really, really well equipped. So a client, you know, a particular person just injured in some way, oftentimes doesn't have the ability to match that in terms of money and talent. But you do in here in the United States by virtue of contingency fees. So you can find the best of the best. If you have a quality case, those lawyers are going to want to take it. So that's an amazing aspect of personal injury law. You know, and then obviously, look, it's not super complex after that. If we're able to prove that somebody was negligent, somebody was responsible for causing an injury, then you know, our system is set up for people to be financially compensated in that event. And that's, that's a really important thing. Actually, you know what you said, I could talk, right? So like here, there's two things that we think really about in being personal injury lawyers. And you know, one is to get compensation for our clients. Like if, so if somebody's hurt, you know, we want to make them whole as best we can. And we can only do it through money. So that's the only thing we can do. But there's a secondary aspect of what we do that I find just as important. And that is you want to effectuate change. You know, so you're trying to get whoever you're suing, a company, anybody really, to change their behavior by virtue of the fact that the lawsuit exists or even the threat of a lawsuit exists. So the civil justice system here, and I know it exists in, in, in England as well, thankfully, is an amazing check on society in a number of different ways. So for example, we do medical malpractice cases. So we're really a check on the medical profession to some degree. Without us being there, doctors would have no fear of what they're doing and they may operate in a little bit more reckless way. And that, you know, so that's in a medical malpractice setting, but even you can just even take the most simplest setting, you know, like, you know, shoveling snow and ice outside your home. You know, look, a lot of people, I'm sure, do that because they don't want their neighbors walking in front of their house to fall and get hurt. You know, nobody wants to see anybody get hurt. But I'm sure a lot of people also do that because they know that if somebody is hurt, they might be responsible for that. So you have this, this dissuasive effect, the civil justice system providing sort of a balancing effect on society. And, and that's a really cool thing to be involved in as a lawyer on a small level, like somebody falls or gets in a car accident. Okay, maybe, maybe there's not big picture things there, but then we also have it on a big picture level. Like, for example, like I'm suing Orly Davidson. Well, you know, I think that's going to help, you know, that company think twice about their machines and so that somebody else maybe doesn't get hurt on them moving forward because some little guy like me is out there saying, you know what, you guys have a problem. And I'm going to bring that to light in an open courtroom. So that, that aspect of the law, you know, one, helping your client get compensation and righting a wrong is, is amazing. But secondarily, you know, sort of from a bigger picture standpoint, having a, a bigger effect on society and, and particularly our society, which is so heavily weighted towards corporations and money and stuff like that. So one little guy, one little barrister sitting in one little corner of an office in Oxford, can actually really, really effectuate a major change. And that's a really, really cool thing. Uh, and, and, and it really does happen. I love that part. Yeah, thank you. That's, first of all, a great explanation of the path of injury and also the kind of importance of this area of law. And I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering, you're talking about make, like making sure that you've got a good case and you want to win. Do you have kind of complete independence in picking which cases that you take on? Of course. Yeah. And we reject... A, a tremendous amount of cases all the time. I mean, strangely enough, we get more inquiries about medical malpractice cases than anything else. And 
we turn down more of those cases than any others. Even even sometimes when we think there was malpractice, because they're they're complex to prosecute, they're often they're defended vigorously. They're very expensive to practice to to prosecute, and and all and because of that, we're reluctant to take those kind of cases unless we really think we could prevail and we really think there's a serious injury. So you see that all the time, and you have to be from a practical standpoint as a lawyer, you can't just take every single case. That walks in. I mean, maybe some guys do, I guess, right? But like, but I don't. If you, you you really can't do that, you have to look at your cases and think. You know, is there liability? Is there fault? And is there damages? And if you think both of those things, you know, then you can you can take the case. But you have to be selective from a practical standpoint, from a business standpoint. Otherwise, you won't be in business long. Yeah. No, I can see exactly. That makes very much logical sense. And and. Is there any sort of like timeline for these cases usually? Oh, gosh. What a horrible question to ask me because that's the biggest problem that we have. Yeah, there is. So in the criminal world, there is a timeline. It would not be weeks, but there are protections, legal protections for people accused of crimes that mandate that you get your day in court within a period of time. Fairly short, although there's always room for, you know, expanding things. But so in the criminal world, there is. There is that aspect to get things done fast. But in the civil world, and you mentioned civil cases, and you also mentioned really corporate cases, there is no such limit. And so the civil side of the law practice is really, really mired in tremendous delays. And that's extremely, extremely frustrating to clients and to lawyers. And the system here is also really susceptible to manipulation causing more delays. And that almost always benefits a, a defendant and benefits a, a moneyed defendant. And so it's wielded as a weapon, as part of a strategic weapon in civil cases all the time, corporate and civil negligence, civil malpractice cases all the time. If you're a defendant, you want to delay and stall and drag it out and cause as much trouble for a plaintiff as you possibly can. And if you're a plaintiff, you want to go as fast as you possibly can. And unfortunately, the civil side of our court system is very much overwhelmed. And, 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 and because someone's liberty is at stake, we don't have those statutorily mandated time periods to move things really, really fast. And so that's what happens. That, the, because of that, if you're a civil lawyer in any of those aspects, you really better know that. If you don't, I don't know what you're doing. But, and you have to take that into consideration and then think, well, how can I effectively move a case faster? Can I, how can I make that happen? You know, one way is through your work, but another way is choosing the venue that your case is in. You know, so you have various choices. We have federal, we have a federal court system and a state system, and they operate completely differently and have different rules. And the federal system is way faster than the state system. And then within the state system, we have various different state courts. And depending on the nature of your case, you can choose which particular state court you may want to be in. And that choice, there's a lot of reasons to make that choice. Uh, a, a seminal one would be the potential jury panels that you may get. But another one these days, particularly post-COVID, is the time constraints. Is, well, which court really can I get to the end faster in and which one can I? All things, co complex questions that you have to take into consideration when you're instituting litigation on the civil side. Not the same on this criminal side. What? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I can say it's a very complex issue. Yeah. And, yeah, and it wasn't on your list. You know, you didn't tell me that you were going to. Yeah, I sort of threw that in there. 
And actually, this is slightly also maybe potentially not on my list, but it's because you were talking about medical negligence. I think they're really, really interesting cases. And I'm wondering whether there would be quite a difference with the UK, because in those cases, is the negligence directed at a particular doctor or like the hospital as a whole? Obviously, we have like the NHS, so I think that it might work a bit differently. Well, you right. You have a national health system mm-hmm. where so we don't write. So that's going to dem. I don't know exactly how it works, but that I'm sure that would that would impact it. Here we don't we don't have that. I just, we could talk for a long time about that problem over here, but but it hasn't been solved. Uh, but that does change the nature of the civil medical malpractice way of proceeding for sure. So t- very typically, an individual doctor will be named, and if the malpractice occurred in a particular hospital, almost always they're named as well. So. You know, there's good and bad with that. You know, the good is that you, you're you bringing in various parties that could be responsible, different deep pockets if your client has a significant injury, so there's enough to compensate them. The other good aspect of that is you're hopefully affecting the quality of service, not just with an individual doctor, but in a hospital setting, and every hospital here has major risk management policies and, 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 and divisions, and it's specifically geared towards that, avoiding the lawsuit, making sure that the practice of medicine is safer and better. The negative of us naming hospitals is, is, is obvious. You know, look, we're not here to try to bankrupt a hospital, which they're, they're 100% of the time covered by insurance policies, but we're still not out there to try to hurt industries in that, in that way. So unfortunately, that aspect of medical malpractice does at times impact on these hospitals' bottom line, but hopefully in a positive way, you know, that they budget their money to prevent you know, these kind of things from happening. You know, it's interesting that you asked that question in this climate now in this country because of all of these, you know, abortion laws that are being passed, which that's a topic for another conversation for us as well. But it, it does impact, it will impact on my practice. And the reason it will impact on my practice is because now you're going to have hospitals and physicians that are afraid of prescribing certain treatments to expected mothers or to people coming in who think they're pregnant or even in high-risk pregnancies and things like that, they're going to now be concerned about potential criminal liability in these states that have some, you know, of these laws that I particularly find helpful to people. So, but irrespective of where you stand on the abortion issue here, there is going to be a secondary effect on the quality of care for women because now you're going to have practitioners. So think about it. If you think about that, that practitioners were somewhat afraid of someone like me, a civil lawyer. Oh, I don't want to get sued and this and that. And adjust their practice to some degree, contemplating civil liability and things like that. Well, now you've added criminal, possible criminal liability. Now what are these guys going to do? They're scared out of their minds. And, it, and there is no other scenario that I've ever seen in my 30 years practicing where a, a state legislative agency an attorney general, a district attorney, can actually impact on a doctor as to what kind of advice or treatment they're going to give to a patient. It's, it's just, it's, it's. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Unbelievable. And I think that's a secondary effect of all of these laws that are being passed in certain states here that people didn't contemplate. And it's going to have a major effect on the care for women uh, who are pregnant and for babies and high risk. And all of that aspect is going to be affected. And that, that's, that's really a shame that, that that's going to happen, but it is going to happen. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting and kind of complex. And I suppose it also shows how law is really impacted by these kind of, well, I suppose, legal, but also political decisions and the kind of rumbling impacts that they have. Sure. Yeah, thank you very much. And so now a slight sort of change in focus. But obviously, I did the research previously to this interview and saw your very emotive case with the Solis family. Could you kind of explain the NYC housing crisis and how this is relevant to the sort of cases you covered? Well, you know, it's funny because since that case came out, a lot of people have been asking me about the housing crisis as, you know, overall. And that certainly wasn't something that I really gave much thought about when that Solis case first came, to, you know, to me. But I have now. And, you know, what's happening with the housing crisis is not un unusual here. It's, it, it's happening in a lot of places where it's just become unaffordable for a, a large segment of the population to find affordable housing. And when they do, particularly here in New York, you know, we have some laws that protect these people, rent stabilized, stabilized apartments, rent controlled apartments and things like that. And so there's there's a big desire on behalf of landlords to to get those apartments to make more money. And listen, I don't have a problem with somebody wanting to make the most money they can, you know, as long as they follow the rules. But what happens is that some of these landlords don't follow the rules and the, uh, one particular segment of the population is impacted by far more than an, another. And that would be the segment of the population that's in the sort of lower socioeconomic status and potentially even non-legal status. You know, so they, they don't make a lot of money. They don't have access to, to lawyers and to the justice system, or they're afraid of it because they have a language barrier or an immigration issue or something like that. And so they don't know what to do. So what happens oftentimes is landlords will will attempt to get these people out of their apartments. And if you do it the right way, that's fine. We have a system in place. It's cumbersome. That's just the way it is. But it works. It's not perfect, but it works pretty well. But oftentimes landlords will, will short circuit that. And they will construct, and this is very common, they'll constructively evict people. So they'll, they'll, they'll try to make it inhabitable, your apartment, and you know, by turning off heat or not fixing things and do, it's just so typical. Uh, it's horrendous, but it happens all the time, right? And the idea is to sort of get you to just leave on your own, you know, and and that happens all the time. So that's just taking a housing crisis that we have where we don't have a lot of affordable housing and magnified it, made it even worse because this this whole this segment of the population that's, you know, disparately affected by the housing crisis is the one that's most oftentimes subjected to aggressive landlords. And also they're the same segment of the population that's most reluctant to get help. They don't, they either don't know how to get help. They're afraid to get help. They can't afford help. Okay. 
or, or they just can't afford to take off time from work and go get help and fight some landlord. So they're really affected by that. You know, so, you know, I didn't get involved in the Solis case to, to do anything like, it's, it's not a case that we normally would handle these kind of cases where, you know, here, but as a lawyer, you know, growing up, you know, in, in the way I grew up, like we kind of live for our cases and live for our clients and you, so it's, they sort of become a part of your existence and as a lawyer. And I think, I guess your show's dear towards young lawyers. Like, hopefully that's why you want to go into this. Like you just feel this. And so like throughout my career, that's it. You know, like you live for your cases and you just become part of your cases. Well, in the Solis situation, <laughs> that sort of happened literally. I mean, these people showed up at my house one night, you know, they were neighbors of mine. I knew them. They weren't close friends of mine, but we knew them. And the father was a, like a handyman and would fix things around our house when we needed it. And uh, the kids were a little bit older than my kids, but they kind of played with my kids. And the mother babysat for my kids once or twice and stuff, you know, like they're just neighbor friends. They were closer friends, quite frankly, with my wife than me. But, you know, it was a family that we knew and liked. And they just showed up at my house one winter night, knocking on the door, literally with garbage bags of stuff. And we were like, what? What do you do? What, what do you mean? What happened? And they, you know, they tried to explain it. And yeah, I, just, I remember that first night. Like, I didn't really understand what, what exactly what had happened. It just, it didn't seem right. It, well, it definitely didn't seem right. But I'm like, whatever. Just, you know what? You guys don't have anywhere to go. That's really what they were there for. So I'm like, you, you got to stay here. Stay in the basement. We had an, a basement apartment. My mother-in-law what usually lives in, but she, she wasn't there at the time. Well, you'll stay here. Stay with us and, you know, we'll figure it out in the morning. And in the morning when they came up to sit with me and I said, well, I don't, I don't understand what happened. Like, what do you mean what happened with your apartment? Well, they started telling me this whole story about how the landlord wanted them to leave and, you know, told them to leave and gave them a notice to leave. And, and this notice is a prerequisite here in the United States to lawfully evicting somebody. You have to first give them notice, give them a piece of paper, get out. But that's it's what we call a 10-day notice. So the landlord has to give you 10 days. And even after the 10 days, they can't throw you out. That just means they can then go to court. But they have to give you that 10 days, say, get out. If you don't get out, I'm going to sue you to get out. Mm-hmm. Fine. So they gave him this notice. And when I looked at it, I was like, wait a minute. You still have like four days left on this notice. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I can't understand this. And I saw what happened. And, they, and then they told me this crazy story about turning off the heat and taking off the door to the bathroom and renovating the first floor apartment and they lived in the basement, but they, you know, shared the kitchen and the, and the first floor apartment. And, you know, it was just our, to me, it was like, I just couldn't believe it. And look, I grew up in Brooklyn and I live in Brooklyn and I'm used to the way things are on the street and the way things are in reality. So to me, I said, look, you know, I don't like this at all. It's just flat out wrong. But if you're going to do something like this as a landlord and you're not going to follow the legal process, well, there's another practical way to do it that you go to your tenants and you go, look, I, I want Yaddy in now. I don't want to wait six months for the court. And I'll give you a couple of bucks. Here's $2,500. You know, here's moving expenses. Like I'll give you an incentive to get it out just so I don't have to go to court. Nope. I got no problem with that at all. Well, they didn't do that either. And then they just threw this family out on the street with three kids. Two of them were like teenagers and one, the little girl Concepcion was like six years old. I mean, I was outraged. So, you know, these particular, this particular family, they weren't looking to do anything. You know, they weren't, they, they, they just needed a place to stay. And they were like, we're going to look for an apartment. They didn't care, but I cared. And so I said, look, I'll get, I'm going to get you a couple of bucks to move. Don't worry about it. And, you know, they lived with me for like, I don't know, a couple, a week or two, however long my wife could stand it. I don't remember. It's nine years ago. 
and I go, I went to work, so I, you know they didn't bother me, but they were there for a couple, maybe a week or two, something like that, two, two or three at most. And we gave them money to find a new apartment, you know, out of our pockets, which they did. So they found another apartment in the neighborhood, and they were like, no problem. They didn't really care. They go on with their lives, they go on with work. But I didn't think it was right. So we contacted the landlord, you know, with a lawyer's letter. I figured, you know, Lux, here's a lawyer's letter for me. I'm a big lawyer, right? Like, you know, what? And it basically said, look, you know, you, you threw them out, you wrongfully evicted them, and give them a couple of bucks. And really, all that it started out with, as was I thought, you know, somebody would have the, you know, the brains to just call me up and, or the reasonableness to call me up and say, all right, you know, we shouldn't have done it. And we'll give them a couple of bucks for their moving expenses and we're sorry, you know, but that's not what happened. And much to my astonishment, they, they not only refused to give them a couple of bucks, but they said, didn't happen. We didn't evict them. They left on their own. And, you know, that for the first and probably only time in my life as a lawyer, I was able to say, well, actually, in this case, I know that's not true. I, I'm, I'm a witness. Like, I was there. I can't believe you could even say that. I, and that got me even more aggravated. But I still thought, look, they'll give them a couple of bucks. And, and they didn't. And then I, I figured, after that happened, I said, wow, I, I, you know, I could have just let it go. I mean, really, the Solis family didn't really care one way or the other. You know, what, what we did as lawyers, they didn't like what happened. But like many people like them, they're hardworking immigrants and young and the, and the kids were there. And they're more concerned with their day-to-day -day lives and moving forward than they are with righting a wrong. It wasn't never about that for them. So, but, but for me, it was. And, and so I said, look, I'll, I'm going to sue these people now for that. And we did. And I figured, look, once we sue them, they, you know, they'll come, they'll come to their, their senses and just say, we're not going to litigate this case. Like, Okay, now what do you want? And again, much to my astonishment, when we sued them, they said, no, we're not, we're not paying. It didn't happen. We're defending the case. You don't have a case. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, so I did what, like, what a lot of lawyers do with a case like that. You give it to a young associate. <laughs> That's what I did. I mean, I said, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with this case. You know, the work-wise, really, at least from the litigation standpoint, I'm like, this is ridiculous. I gave it to a young associate. And I said, prosecute the case. They're going to pay. I mean, this is stupid and, and litigate the case and, you know, let me know if you have a problem. And I figured again, you know, once work got done, you know, so they start, we, we, we go through the discovery process here in the civil cases. So you do depositions and take people's testimony under oath, which I thought was just ridiculous here, but I'm like, all right. So once they do that, you know, they'll, they'll come to their senses. But incredibly to me, they, they did all the depositions of everybody in the case and then said, we're not paying. And then they actually tried to get the case dismissed on, on really technical grounds that are not really interesting for a discussion, you know, whether you, they were a subtenant and this and that. It's just nonsense. But I'm like, you're never going to win that. And I couldn't believe they were even trying it. And now this is an insurance company defending the case on behalf of this landlord, which got me even more aggravated because normally I would, with an insurance company, I'd say, what are you guys crazy? Pay a couple of bucks. Like, this doesn't even make business sense for you. Mm -hmm. And I knew this insurance company and knew these lawyers, but they wouldn't bank. And they moved to dismiss and they were unsuccessful. So then after they were unsuccessful in moving, the in moving to dismiss the case, I figured, all right, now you guys going to bank? And they said, no, they, want they wanted to appeal. Now, I mean, that one was like, wow. I, I mean, now this case is becoming something I, I, I don't, you know, from Mars, as if it wasn't in the beginning.
And again, I'm like, you know, I, I, the expense of appealing here in the United States is a lot. If, if, if you're particularly if you're the loser of the motion below and they were. So they're the appellant. They're the ones saying we're aggrieved. So that that makes it, that means it's much more costly for you. I, and I'm like, I can't believe that's more than I was looking for. Like it had to, in my opinion, it had to cost ten to fifteen thousand dollars in expenses. I'm not talking about legal fees, just expenses. Right. Because you have to reproduce the record and all sorts of stuff. It's just really cumbersome. We really didn't have all electronic filing back then, so it's very expensive. I mean, I'm like, you guys, I was looking for like twenty five hundred dollars, and you're going to spend five times that to do this appeal. This is just I don't get it. But nevertheless, they did the appeal. And then the appeal took two years in part because of COVID and our appellate system is so backed up and so slow. But unsurprisingly, the appellate court did not look very kindly on this landlord's activities and wrote a scathing appellate decision. You know, just blasting them, which of course I knew would happen. And I figured when, I figured when that happened, they would come to me and say, we're going to settle this case. And when, in fact, I missed one step, that was the root. How could I forget this? Before you, when you file an appeal, the appellate courts are really serious. They're a lot more serious, obviously, than you know, the, the lower court cases. They should be. And so they mandate that you go to a settlement conference with an appellate division judge before you actually file your briefs and do all the really heavy legwork. And that, it's really a good idea. You, know, you bring people together and you have a real serious judge who's really intelligent, really knows the case. And you have a real serious discussion about settling. When we went to that and figured, bye, we'll settle the case here. And at that point with this appellate division judge, I said, well, now I want $25,000 to settle the case, which is still like nothing. It's it's meaningless money because you guys dragged me through the mud for five years or whatever it is. Now I want $5,000 a piece instead of $2,500, you know, people whatever it was. And these guys looked at us and said, read my lips. There will never be a penny offered on this case. I mean, that's what they said. It was like, wow, you know, I mean, remember what I told you about what it's real life and practicing, you know, that's what that's like. you like, oh. and, but I, okay, that's what you guys want to do. So then they, then they got destroyed on the appeal and lost. And now there's no barrier to me getting in front of a jury. And so that's what we said. Well, now, now let's see what a jury in Brooklyn thinks of all of this stuff that you did to these people, which included making false police reports and making allegations of child abuse. And this is not atypical. Like this, when, this is sometimes what happens when a landlord's trying to get somebody out. They'll just like do anything to do it. Turn off your heat, turn off your water, don't fix anything, take off doors, start doing construction, harass you, call the police and say you don't belong there. And in this case, make an, a false allegation that a child wasn't being cared for properly. Just, just horrendous stuff. Let's see what a jury thinks about that. And, you know, we started a trial. And of course, my wife and I were going to be star witnesses. Good luck with me as a witness. You know, I didn't try the case. I, I left, I let my young associate, now partner, who did an incredible job on the case throughout and did the appeal. I said, you're the trialer on this, of course, but I'm the, I'm the witness. That's all. first time, first and only time. Never, I never got to get on the stand, unfortunately. I think that would have been a lot of fun, right? And of course, they paid. They paid $275,000 to settle the case that they could have settled for $2,500 at one point, $25,000 at another point. And now that case, I, you know, look, we didn't, we were really happy to get it for this family. They took the money and, and, and bought a, you know, put a down payment on a house and so they could all live together. It's really kind of amazingly full circle and ironic that 
this landlord threw them out on the street. And that, in, to some degree, has helped them get their feet on the ground and be together as a family because they, you know, they, 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 they had this settlement that, that really, really helped. And so they were, you know, obviously they were thrilled and, and it was just lovely, amazing scene. And I'm obviously very close friends with this family in, in addition to them being clients, but then it kind of generated some buzz on its own, you know, some local Brooklyn paper picked up on it. And we were getting all sorts of calls, you know, it's so, so funny. I, I think we've gotten more calls from people saying they have been mistreated by their landlords than like anything else since that story came out. You know, so so obviously there's a major, you know, there's a bigger problem out there. I mean, and unfortunately, we can't take all of these cases. They're not all cases like the Solis case, even even where people are in the right as to what happened. They're hard, you know, you can't take, they're just, they're not like a common case. So, but we've gotten more calls on those tiny kind of cases than anything else since then. So that's got to tell you something, right? Wow, thank you. That is sort of shows the like perseverance that you have to have with working in this field to keep pushing it further. Nine years. Yeah. That case is nine years. Nine years of me taking crap. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a good example, right? Like you get to eat it at every state. I mean, there were for nine years, people telling you, no, 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 you're wrong. You're going to lose and this and getting in your way and delay. Not That case took nine years, nine years third of my life as a lawyer that case existed it's crazy yeah wow i mean got to be ready for that i guess as a lawyer yeah that is that's a kind of impressive statement to have and and yeah i mean it's a very emotive and clearly shining a light on a problem that with going around well and that problem is always existing you know i do think the notoriety that that case got I'll bet you that is going to have an effect on some people. Some people are going to see that case because it gets reported and our field looks at it. And just like we talked earlier about the dissuasive effect of lawsuits that they can have that dual effect, you know, one effect, you know, you know, compensating your client for something that they were wrong, but the secondary effect of a greater good effect. And that's a big thing for me, you know, now, and then we did, and again, we didn't start out thinking that in this so lease case, but clearly at this point, that seems to have happened where, where we were like, wow, what is, you know, we that story has gotten out there and it, 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 it seems to have been be having an effect on people. So I think so, like if one landlord out there saw this case and decides, you know what, I'm not throwing these people out, I'm going to do it the right way, then that's a pretty cool thing to have, have happened from a case, right? And that really good reason to be a lawyer and do these things. Yeah, definitely to try and kind of implement that positive change. And yeah, as, as we spoke about earlier, yeah. the kind of two sides of the case is there. Yeah. And you got, if you're not thinking about that greater good side as a lawyer, and I don't think you should be a lawyer. I really just don't. I just don't think you should do it because it's not easy and it's frustrating, like I said, and you go through, you have to go through a lot. So like, if you don't have a big picture in mind, like a real passion and a desire to do something, to do some good, to do some change, to, you know, in some fashion, because that's what really what the law you know, is about, you know, when I, what I was taught by my father, who was taught by his father, was that the law was a noble profession, you know, that this was like something you went into with good intentions, you know, not intentions to make money and, you know, or get accolades. I don't, I don't know why, you know, people want to do it, but like, but for noble reasons, for real reasons. And, 
that's why I went into it and, and how I've always practiced. And that's also what has given me the most satisfaction every single time. And it's never about getting paid. That is meaningless. When the years go by, you just, it doesn't do anything. But to be able to effectuate change, to be able to comp get somebody compensation when they're wrong and see how that affects them, and, you know, makes their lives better. And then that you think you can actually have an effect on, you know, society in some way, even if it's a small way. And that's a, that's really a cool thing. And, and that's, that, that's why I wanted to be a lawyer and what gives me the most satisfaction all the time. Perfect. Thank you. And that actually ties in really nicely with sort of my final questions, you could say, as we sort of speak about uh, the majority of our listeners are aspiring lawyers. And so you aren't quite in their career path yet. So following on what we've discussed about, what would you say are both the biggest challenges and linked to that, what would be your main advice for aspiring lawyers? Biggest but challenge to be, to becoming a lawyer? <laughs> well, other than the schooling and, you know, and testing, and then I guess getting employed, although, although no one ever hired me, you know, I, I, Oxford would have never taken me and nor would any big law firm ever have hired me. I, I never worked for anybody because nobody, I don't think anybody would have hired me. So I went to work for myself. And I think that's a really cool thing. So other than those barriers, in other words, just getting to a point where you can effectuate change either by working for somebody or yourself, you know, those are the real barriers to doing that, you know, but after that, you know, you, you, you have to have this, this passion and this desire to do good, you know, to do greater good. And if you have that, everything will work out for you. And, and I, I think, you know, you hear a lot like, oh, there's too many lawyers. And, you know, by the way, the great Shakespearean quote, which everybody misquotes about, you know, all the you know, kill all the lawyers. And if you, you know, do you know that quote? Yeah, I think I don't know if I could quote it off my heart, but I've definitely... Yeah, but, you know, people, people misquote it all the time. It's like, oh, they, they, they misquote it saying Shakespeare said, you know, society would be better if we kill all the lawyers. But actually, the, the real line, I think, and now I'm talking to Brit, so I should probably get it right, though, is if you want to ensure anarchy, kill all the lawyers. So if you look at that, that expression a little deeper, and I, and I may be off a little bit, but the, the breadth of it was Shakespeare was not really saying get rid of all the lawyers and kill them all, but rather that without them, you would have a society that may not function properly. And, I, I, and that's a really interesting thing, especially when I'm talking to people in, in England, I guess, right? And some Oxford students who are probably pretty intelligent. You, the youth of society can make a difference. And I think as a lawyer, you see that more than maybe any other field, right? Like we can, you can get out there and protest. You could be Greta Thornburg and do all these great things, which is, that's incredible, right? But as a lawyer, you're actually put in a position to make a difference, either myopically, like in one little small case, one little small instance, or globally in a, in a bigger instance. You're put in a position where one person, one little small guy, I'm suing Harley Davidson. You know, I sued Madison Square Garden and, and other entities in a big boxing case. You know, we've sued hospitals. You know, we've sued big corporations. Like, so the system is set up for one little person at times to make a big, big difference. And the legal system is there to effectuate that. There's no rule that says you have to be in a giant firm or you have to go to Oxford. It probably helps. Okay. But like, there's no rule that says that you can go to Brooklyn law school. Like I went to, you know, and, and, and make a major difference. So I think like, if I was like, you know, telling an aspiring lawyer, like, why do you want to do this? Like, I hope it's for that reason. Like, I hope you want to get out there and make a difference, you know, in society and, you know, do some good for your clients, but do some greater good overall. 
And if you if you have that, and that's the aspirations that you have going in, I think a lot of people lose that, maybe start out that way and lose it because it's hard to practice and you have to earn a living and you have to make some money and I get it. But if you never lose sight of those factors as a lawyer, because every I think every kid that's like, I want to be a lawyer, wants to be a lawyer because they're thinking, you know, I want to I want to do something important. Like I want to make a difference. We all start out that way. And I think it's hard maybe to, to stay that way. And so I hope that you know, people listening to this, I guess, you know, and then if that's why they're listening to this, like thinking about doing this, it, you know, there's nothing more satisfying than helping another human being on an individual level. And seeing how that works. I get Christmas cards and phone calls years and years and years and years later from people being like, thank you. You changed my life. That's like the most incredible thing ever. And then secondarily to think, well, I think I've made a difference. Like, I think I've changed things for the better in certain areas, whatever that is. And like nothing beats that. I don't, I don't see how that anything could be cooler or more satisfying than that. So do that. Thank you very much. That's fantastic advice. And yeah, hopefully... A lot of our listeners will take that in as they start on their career as law. Yeah, go sue everybody and make sure they pay and make sure they stop doing all these horrible things in whatever field, environment, healthcare, driving. I don't care what it is. Go do it. Thank God you have the system. We have a legal system that allows that. Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on our show and agreeing to be interviewed. It's fantastic. Love, love, love. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you found me. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.